Was it me? Did I just hear somebody go, woo? <laughs> Way to go. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, says, Two are better than one, for they get a good re- reward for their toil. And uh, they talk, I think that's true when it comes to duets on the piano. So way to go, Sarah and Chris. What a gift you gave us there. Uh, Pastor Brian, if he's not out of town, he's, uh, he's preaching at the Kesslinger campus. We just decided to swap campuses because we never get choir anthems or piano duets at the Kesslinger campus. And so it's good to be here to worship the Lord with you and to celebrate. We're uh, jumping into our series, uh, Pathway to Purpose. Now in the third week. Uh, for the first week we looked at uh, the... The vision of the church, God's purpose for his people collectively, and over the next three weeks, this week included, and next week, we're looking at our individual part that we play as a part of God's body, uh, the body of Christ in the world. And looking at this in terms of these six G's we call pathway to purpose. Now these, these are not something we invented, they're profoundly biblical, you find them all over the scriptures and other churches have done something similar, but they're really designed to be, I met a man recently, he's a new believer at North Aurora campus, and he said, I, I, I'm excited to know that God loves me and died for me, but what should I do now? Great question. What do you want? I mean, I'm in, he said. Tell me what to do. We think these six G's represent the life that God has called us to, and I want to tell you, it's not just what God wants from you but primarily what he wants for you. What he wants for you, the life that he's called you to live once you receive his grace. They're not boxes to check. They're not a, a to-do list for God. They're not even a way to earn God's favor. They are a pathway to enter into the life that God wants for each of us. I think the greatest discovery in life is to learn that there's a God who loves you, who made you in his image, who sent his son to die for you, And that by repenting of your sin and trusting him in faith, you have new life. But that new life is not just like a get-out-of-hell-free card you put in your pocket and hold on till heaven. Too many Christians think of it that way. It's salvation, forgiveness, and hope for eternity, and then an entrance into a life right now with him. The greatest adventure, to join him in his purpose, his mission in the world, and in our lives. Last week we covered two different G's, gather and gospel. Why we gather as God's people for corporate worship, which we're doing right now, and why we share the gospel, proclaim it, promote it, live it out in our lives, wherever we have opportunity. This week we're looking at two more G's, grow and groups. You'll see them here on the screen. We have little statements for each of them. Groups, as followers of Jesus, we know that we cannot live the Christian life on our own. We make it a priority to connect in groups in order to encourage one another, and pray for one another as we seek Christ together. And grow. As followers of Jesus, we understand that God wants each of us to grow spiritually. We know the primary way we grow in our relationship with him is through scripture and prayer. So maybe the question for each of you this morning is this. Are you growing up or just growing old? (laughs) There's a difference. John and I were talking before the service started. We're all growing old. You're a week from 80. We can't stop it. We all are growing old. But are you growing up spiritually in him? And does it matter your biological age? God wants each of us to grow up in him. Now these two G's are intentionally put together. They're linked together because they're, inter- they're intertwined in our lives. We tend to overcomplicate, I think, or over-mystify the spiritual life. Spiritual growth is not that complicated. Doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's not that complicated. 
and it's what God wants for each of us. So first point here, God wants you to grow. That may sound obvious or elementary to some of you, but it's, a, it's profoundly important that we, we, that's the foundation of what we talk about. It is God's desire for each of his children to grow up spiritually. None of us come to him fully formed. We all have some growing to do. In fact, God is working in you through the Holy Spirit to bring that about. Parents say things like, and I, I've said this, I wish I could freeze time. How many of you moms or dads have ever said that? I wish I could just stop it and stop you from growing. I want to I keep you at this stage. And I, I understand that sentiment. I feel that, believe me, as a father of three who are two are out of the house. But the truth is, every mom and dad, we say those kinds of things because it's emotional, but we would be bad parents if that were really true. We don't really want our kids to stay infants forever. Because quite frankly, there are certain times, and you can remember this, maybe it's longer ago for some of you than others, when your kids were little, you're like, Would you, I want them to grow out of diapers, please. I want this stage to be over. The truth is, every good parent, our heart for our children is that they would grow. And deep inside, I rejoice in my children's growth. I want to see them flourish. I want to see them step into their own identity as a follower of Jesus in the adult world. Sure, sure, I miss the days when they're under my roof and they're little and we cared for them in every way. But the truth is, as a dad, my father's heart is deeper than that. It's for them to grow. That's a poor reflection of God's heart for you as his son or daughter. He wants you to grow. He's for you, working in you to bring this about. We come to Christ as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we were. Praise God that's true. We say things around here like, it's okay not to be okay. That's true. But it's not okay to stay that way. God wants us to grow in him. He has more for us. I remember years ago baptizing a man who was 81. Like the day after his 81st birthday, we baptized him in an outdoor service. And he said to me, after he got out of the tank all wet, he gave me a hug and he said, please pray for me that I'll continue to grow in Christ every day that God gives me an opportunity. He's 81. What a great vision for his life. Because spiritual growth has very little to do with your biological age. Let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. This is, uh, you'll know this text, some of you will know this. This is Paul's teaching about the gifts in the church. But there's this little snippet here in the middle I want to focus on, beginning in verse 12. And I really should have brought my glasses up here with me. This is, uh, I'll read it from the screen. I can't see this. <laughs> to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to, say it with me, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are to grow up. Paul is writing to a church here, a collective you. We, he's saying. We're given these gifts for the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach maturity. To the measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ is our measure and our means of spiritual growth. So we won't be children anymore, infants tossed around. This is the mark of, of, of childhood. Like squirrel. New idea, new, new thought, right? We move back and forth, just easily distracted, easily caught up, easily led astray. Maturity means we, we have an anchor, a depth, a steadfastness to us. Christ is that measure. 
The word mature is the Greek word teleos. It means complete, lacking nothing. Now, none of us reach that until we meet him face to face, whether he returns or we go to be with him. Dave, I'm thinking about Deb, who understands completeness and fullness the way that we don't right now. Until Christ is formed in us. Paul says in Galatians 4, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. First of all, I think, how would he know what childbirth is, pains are? But anyway, he, he means, I long for you to be formed in Christ. In James 1.4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be complete, lacking nothing. But just because we'll never experience that complete fullness until we see him face to face does not mean we aren't growing and progressing toward that now. The New Testament is clear. We are, or we should be. Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says, He who began a good work in you. You know this verse. When did he begin a good work in you? Where did that work in you begin? The moment you trusted in Christ for salvation. When that, that began a work, your salvation is accomplished at the cross. But when you come to him, that begins his work of sanctification, of renewal, of growth in you. He who began that will complete it. We continue to grow in him. Look at what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says. I, I love this verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament is clear that spiritual growth does not mean new, innovative ideas. It does not mean uh, clever things or mystical insights or secret knowledge. Our, our culture is uh, easily caught up with something new, the latest, the newest fad. Now we know. We're on the right side of history now. Now we understand. We've had it wrong forever. What's new, what's edgy, what's... And I'm not saying there aren't new discoveries. But from the Bible's perspective, what you need to grow is not necessarily something new. It's what you already have but has not transferred from here to here. It isn't made its way into all of your life yet. We know Jesus Christ and his gospel and his grace through the word of God. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here. It does not matter how old or how young you have been a Christian, God wants you to grow. Second, growth requires effort. Growth requires effort. We're not passive objects, just waiting on God to change us. You have a part to play in your own spiritual growth. Um, salvation is entirely Christ's work, 100%. That's, we need to make that crystal clear. To have your sins forgiven and your eternity secured and your identity changed, transferred from darkness to light, from death to life, brought from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of his glorious light. That only God accomplishes, and he's done it through the cross in Christ. And the moment you surrender yourself to him in prayer, humbly acknowledging that he is Lord and you're not, your salvation is accomplished. The Spirit enters your life, and you become a child of God. And that is the entry. Like I think what's happened in, in our culture, and I'm getting guilty of this, is we shrink down the gospel to just that message the forgiveness of sin. It's bigger than that. The gospel is Christ died to forgive your sins and bring you into his kingdom as his child, and then what? 
So you just muddle through? No. So you're in the secret club? No, so that you increasingly become the kind of man or woman he desires and designed you to be. But you grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this does not happen without effort. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I, I want to walk through this, this the beginning of Peter, uh, this second letter of Peter because he outlines this, I think, beautifully and really profoundly. That shouldn't say Simeon, that's Simon, that's a typo there. Anyway, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God our Savior, of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So let me pause there. Your righteousness and your standing, that's your salvation, are established by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. You didn't do that. Your standing before God, He accomplished. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises if you like to highlight or underline in your bible you should circle or highlight the two words power and promises his divine power has given us all things everything we need through the promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire We'll pause there. Whoop. Go back one. Just for a second. His power, his promises, make us partakers of the divine nature. Peter's saying, your standing before God has been accomplished by Christ, and additionally, God's given you everything you need to grow in life and godliness. You lack nothing. All the resources are there. I am in the slow, day-by-day, week-by-week process of remodeling my bathroom downstairs, our little, our little half-bath. My son did the plumbing. It was done in a day. I, I, it's not going so well now that I'm in charge of the rest of it. All the, uh, the, the, the backsplash and the side splash and the, and the silicone and the tools, everything I need is there, right? But I haven't put it together yet, right? Maybe that's a little bit of a metaphor for some of us in our spiritual life. He's given us everything we need. We don't lack anything. But some of us haven't quite put it all together yet. In fact, all of us haven't quite put it all together yet. That you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. I don't know how this strikes you, but this passage should be a deep encouragement to you. If God wants you to grow, he's not left you to your own devices. He's given you all things, everything you need for life and for godliness. Now, next slide. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That last line. If these things are yours and increasing, in other words, if you are growing in these things, they will keep you not from being saved, you're already saved, but from being what? Ineffective unfruitful, unproductive. Which means it's possible to be an ineffective and unproductive or unfruitful Christian. And quite frankly, I think the American church is full of ineffective and unproductive, unfruitful Christians. Present company, of course, excluded. 
Peter is saying, your standing before God is secure. Your salvation's been accomplished. You have a new identity, and you have his power, and you have his promises. You have everything you need. So get to work. Get to work. Make every effort to grow. Because in growing, you will be effective and productive and fruitful in the life he's called you to. He's talking about a pathway to purpose for our lives. Now notice, not God's giving you everything you need, so just let go and let God. But he's giving you everything you need. So make every effort. Make every effort. This means applying his power and his promises to every area of our lives. You struggle with the need to control everything? The promise that he is in control, not you. He is sovereign. Apply that to your heart. You struggle with the ability to forgive yourself for past sins? Apply the promise that in Christ you, you, our sins are removed. You struggle to forgive others? You hold grudges? Like this is spiritual growth at the, at the rubber meets the road street level. Apply his power and his promise. That, in, that we are to be kind and compassionate, Ephesians 4, 32, one to another, forgiving each other as in Christ Jesus God has forgiven us. This is why he lists these, we don't have time to go through them all, but virtue, moral excellence, knowledge, growing understanding, steadfastness, perseverance, and endurance. Godliness, that means devotion or piety. Brotherly kindness, this is the word Philadelphia. And love, it's the word agape. And I don't know if you notice this, but there's a, there's a progression here. That one leads to the other. In other words, when you grow in moral perfection, virtue, it leads to a deeper knowledge of God. Knowledge of God is not academic, it's experiential. And a deeper knowledge of God will make you more self-controlled, because you realize he's in control, not you. And more self-control will help you be steadfast and persevere under trial. And steadfastness will lead you to become a, a more godly person, somebody who's, who has a deeper devotion to God. And this will make you kinder, more affectionate toward your brothers and sisters in Christ and in the world. And that will lead you to learn about sacrificial love that Christ has for each of us. And verse 8, if these are yours and increasing, that we're growing. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12, and some of you will know this verse, I, I've memorized it years ago, but it, uh, it, it's always, it's a, it's a bit of a puzzle at first glance. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but also in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The next verse, which is not listed here, says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Well, which is it? Paul, do we work it out or does he work in us? Paul's answer, yes. God is working in you to will and act according to his good purpose. So you work it out. Notice this is really important. I, know you, I don't want to presume you know this. It does not say work for your salvation. That has been accomplished at the cross. But now that it has, work that out into every area of your life. You belong to him now. So you have some work to do as he works in you. It's easy, I think, to assume that all of this is a, is a personal, individual, private endeavor. Our own private work with God. 
that our individual spiritual growth is just that, individual and personal. This is not so. This is profoundly antithetical to the New Testament. But it's deeply American. Me and Jesus, my spirituality, my personal growth. We grow best in groups. This is the last point. We grow best in groups. You, you will not grow into the man or woman God designed you to be in isolation. You won't. How many of you know uh, the largest living single cells or single stem organism on the planet? It's not a fungus or a forest because those are different stems, right? The largest single living thing on the planet is the General Sherman giant sequoia tree in the Yosemite National Forest. Almost 40 feet in diameter, over 300 feet tall. It's been, uh, they estimate, alive for 2,200 years. Sequoias can live up to 3,000 years. The coastal redwoods are taller, but nothing is as large as a giant sequoia. Massive. Do you know what, uh, how deep? Like an oak tree has a taproot that goes almost as deep as it does in the ground as it does high, above the ground. Sequoias are very different. 300 feet tall, do you know how deep their root system goes? 10 to 12 feet. But you will never find a sequoia by itself in a field, alone on the, alone on the hillside. They grow because what holds them together is their root system, though shallow, is intertwined with the other sequoias. They literally hold one another up. And that's why they grow together. In fact, uh, in 2003, two massive 200 feet tall sequoias fell over in a relatively minor windstorm. They, windstorm. they had stood for over uh, a thousand years and they collapsed. Nobody was there to see or hear it, so I don't know if it made a sound or not, but anyway. That's, <laughs> but the park rangers found them, and this is a tragedy to arborists to find two massive old beautiful trees that had fallen over. And they, there was no disease in the, in the uh, tree itself. There was no rot in the root system. They couldn't figure it out. What they discovered was foot traffic from millions of visitors to the park for decade after decade after decade had weakened their root system and their connection to the other trees around them such that a storm which they had withstood many worse over the centuries toppled them because they were weakened with their connection. I think that's a great metaphor for the life we're called to live spiritually. It's a myth and a lie that you can do this on your own. You cannot. You need to be connected to other believers. Barna Research slide will show you here. Uh, Barna Research did a, a study of U.S. Christians uh, and their understanding of a number of things. And what, this slide doesn't show this specifically, but it's one of a series of slides that indicate that almost 65% of American church-going Christians think they can live, they can, they can do their spiritual life on their own. They don't need community to, li- to live out their faith. This particular slide shows that Friends should challenge each other to grow in healthy ways. The percent that strongly agree. Only 33% of all Christians think that's true. That's shocking. Less than 50% of those that are already in discipleship community. Which makes me think, what's happening in those communities? That they think friends shouldn't challenge each other to grow spiritually. The early church understood this in a way that we don't. Acts 2.46 and Acts 5.42. Two little references here. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice, temple together, a large group gathering, and in their homes, small groups. In, in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, 
They did not cease teaching and preaching that, that the Christ is Jesus. They have both large corporate gatherings, the Lord added their number, those who were being saved. Thousands were coming to faith in Christ. They, they met on the steps of the temple, Solomon's porch. And they also met house to house in groups. But that's not how we've been conditioned to think in America. You've been trained to think that uh, you can do it on your own. We're, we're connected, of course, in, on social media. We have Facebook friends and social media followers and so on. Pseudo-community. But very little real deep community. Very little real deep connection with other believers who know us and our struggles and our pains and our joys, who can challenge us, who can call us out, who encourage us, who come alongside of us. This is foundational to the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, talking about our access we have. Because of the access we now have to enter into the presence of God, here's one of the results of that. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You cannot do, there's two one another's here, right? Consider how to stir one another up and encourage one another. There's over 33 one another's in Scripture. You cannot do the one another with just one. You need another. You need to be one anothering in community. And these are not suggestions. They're commands. Love one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Those are not like, hey, good ideas if you have the time. Those are commands in Scripture. And this combination of spiritual growth and the need for a Christian community or groups is essential for the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book that I, I've, I've loved for years called Life Together. He wrote this book out of his own experience of Christian community in, uh, in, a, in the Finkenwald River. The Finkenwaldians were a, a group of underground seminarians. Bonhoeffer was convinced that uh, the church, which was under attack and being morphed into the image of the Nazi party, they were getting rid of any non-Aryan pastors who didn't uh, swear allegiance to the Fuhrer, needed to train people faithful to the gospel for the future of the church. But it was illegal, so they hid out on the Finkenwald River and lived life together, studying the scriptures, doing the one another's, and being trained. One friend of Bonhoeffer's uh, named uh, Wilhelm Niesel thought this was extreme, and you're going to get caught and arrested, and you don't need to hide away and do this extreme version of life together. And Bonhoeffer took him on a, a boat ride, a little, uh, like a rowing boat trip, uh, up the Oder Sound. They reached the far shore. He, he led Niesel up onto the top of this hill, and down below, far below on the plain, was the Hitler Youth Camp, where young men and boys were being trained in Nazism. They live there, they, they're marching in formation, and they're learning, and they're being discipled, quite frankly, in a whole other kingdom, a kingdom of hardness and cruelty and arrogance and nationalistic pride that was going to unmake the world if Hitler had his way. And Bonhoeffer, with his friend Wilhelm, on that hillside said, our formation must be stronger than theirs. What we're doing has to be stronger than what they're doing. So this idea that, well, you don't, I mean, okay, a small group is a good idea if it's a supper club. But I, I can't meet weekly. Maybe like once a month we'll have dinner and, and check in. Like in that context, they had this intense realization, 
We need each other, and we have to train to be faithful to Christ. We have to encourage each other, hold one another up. I think one of the myths of American Christianity, and I'm guilty of this too, is that it can do it on my own. Sure, I, I like seeing you, but, you know, at arm's length. You know, I, 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 like, I like most of you, most of the time. Right? But, I, but I, I have my own life, and I have my, my boundaries. To the early Christians who were living in an, an age of increasing persecution, to people like Bonhoeffer, and to those who have been most alive in Christ, they've had an intense realization that you cannot do this on your own. That's a lie. You will not grow into the kind of man or woman God wants you to be, and this world needs on your own or in isolation. Here's what Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together. This is a long quote, and years ago, Pastor Brian said, Jeff, stop with the long quotes. Nobody can follow them, but I never listen, so here we go. Uh, He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer that call. That means you don't come to faith in Christ uh, because your parents are Christians or because your church family. You alone must meet Jesus. You had to struggle and pray. Alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself for God has singled you out. If you refuse to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you. And you can have no part in the community of those who are called. We pause there. He's saying, if there's no authentic individual spiritual life, if you're not in the Word, if you're not in prayer, if you've never really met Christ yourself, then you have nothing to offer the community. You haven't really understood Christ's call. And I think he's right about that. But the reverse is also true. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Into the community you were called. The call was not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross, you struggle, you pray. You are not alone, even in death. And on the last day, you will be only one member of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship, you also reject the call of Jesus Christ. And thus, your solitude can only be hurtful to you. It is not as though one preceded the other. Both begin at the same time, namely with the call of Jesus Christ. I love that last line. When Christ calls you and you repent of sin and trust in him, you enter into a personal spiritual growth process with him and into a community of faith which is meant to help you and you to help each other in that very thing. They both begin at the same time. I think Bonhoeffer's right. Let the one who cannot be alone beware of being a community because you're just sucking the life out of it. You have nothing to offer. There's no authenticity to you. But let the one who's not in community be aware of being alone, because then you're really alone. We need both personal spiritual growth and a group of believers who know us and love us and can challenge us. Last passage I want to share with you before we wrap up. We're in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. I, I have loved this passage as like, a, as like a charge to Christian friends, Christian community, and small groups. Here's what Peter, writing, writing to the, the diaspora, right, to, 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 Jew, to Christians all over, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. What a good friend Peter must have been. He said, look, I know that I don't have much time left on this earth. But as long as I'm here, 
I'm never going to stop reminding you. Even though I know you know this. I look out at this, this sea of faces, and I know most of you know these things. Maybe not all of you, but most of you. But I'm never going to stop reminding you or stirring you up by way of reminder. Because we forget. Go read the book of Deuteronomy. It's an entire book written about forget to a forgetful people. It's the second law, because they forgot the first one. doesn't mean it's a new law. It means you're, you've wandered away. I'm going to tell you again. How much of the scriptures is telling God's people again and again and again? What is your responsibility but to tell your brothers and sisters what is already true, what they already know? How many of you, right now, can relate to that? You've been stirred up by way of reminder. At some time in your spiritual Christian life, somebody has told you something that you already knew here, but you needed to hear it again. Anybody? I just want to ask you this question. Who in your life needs to be stirred up by way of reminder? And and I notice what he said. I know the temptation for me is to think, yeah, but they they know this, and who am I to say anything, and I don't have my act together, and they're not going to listen. And Peter's like, I don't care about that stuff. I'm just going to keep reminding you and keep reminding you. This is spiritual growth telling each other again the good news of the gospel. God really is sovereign, though it feels like he's not sometimes. God really is good. All things are working together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even though I doubt it sometimes. My sins really are forgiven, though I sometimes struggle with self-doubt and self-loathing. Like, you need to tell each other. And you can't do that in isolation. Okay, I'll stop yelling at you. (laughs) I want to urge you and encourage you that God wants you to grow. Growth takes effort. It's not something we do passively. And we grow best together in groups. So if you're not already in one, pray about that. Regardless of the stage of life, you need a community of faith. Maybe, maybe, as, in the, maybe as we advance past midlife, I think about that in my life now more than ever. I need more people around me than ever before. In fact, the more mature I get, one of the marks of maturity is that I have, more, I have a more of an understanding of my need for other believers, not less. What a shame if we become more isolated from one another as we grow. We're missing out on what God has. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace poured out on us in Jesus. We're not worthy of it. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. You give it freely. Your power and your promises and your presence in our lives. We're so grateful for that. And we acknowledge, though we live in an individualistic society, we experience your power and promises and presence best and most profoundly in community. Thank you for the gift of your grace that you want us to grow and for the gift of community. We pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen. Before our benediction this morning, just a reminder, there are folks up front to pray with you and uh, see a Stephen minister if that's something that would be helpful or you'd like to serve in. But now let's listen to what Peter says. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen.